Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Tom Parmentier is the COO of Express Homebuyers and has been with the company for nearly 12 years. As the COO, his responsibilities include management of acquisitions, sales, marketing, and IT development, with a daily focus on continuously improving the company's systems to make the selling experience easier and less stressful for their customers. Express Homebuyers is a fast-growing and technology-advanced real estate investment company that specializes in purchasing, renovating, and reselling homes. At Express Homebuyers, they believe that perseverance and continuous improvement, fairness, confidence, and work-life balance are the roots of any successful business. They continuously strive to uphold these core values while having a relaxed, fun, and professional work setting. They believe that these core values are the driving force behind their success, and the company has purchased more than 2,200 homes since 2003 and held an A-plus rating with the Better Business Accreditation. I'm really also excited to say that Tom is one of the founding members of the COO Alliance, and I've also been coaching Tom and his CEO over the last 12 months. So Tom, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thanks, Cameron. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of getting the, the, the rest of the story. I mean, obviously, since, since I've been working and coaching you and the two founders um, over the last roughly 12 months, and, and obviously having a lot of time to be able to spend with you at the COO Alliance and doing some of our morning runs while you're there as well and golfing together. We spent a fair bit of time together, and I know some of the insides and outs of your business, but also of your role, more than a lot of our guests on the Second in Command podcast. Why don't you give us, and that's why I'm excited to have you share your story. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey, even before 2003? What, what gave you the experience to get started with Express Homebuyers? And then tell us a little bit about your journey and also give us maybe a quick helicopter tour of what the brand does today. That sounds great. Yeah. I've been in the DC metro area. Most of my life, I went to George Mason University, bachelor's degree in finance. And when I was at George Mason, I was working at a golf course because I, I love to play golf. And for me to be able to play golf was, you know, that was the only way that I was able to do it. And one day, one of my friends said, Hey, Tom, I just got this job selling windows and I made $1,000 this week. I said, what? You made $1,000 in one week? I think I was making, I don't know, six, seven bucks an hour. So I wasn't making anything, but I was playing a lot of golf. And he said, and you know what, Tom? They hire anyone. I was like, you're kidding. I can make $1,000 a week and they'll hire anyone. And little did I know about that industry, but not knowing, I said, all right, can you, you share that information? So I, I went to go work for this home improvement company. And that was my first taste of being in a sales environment. With what I was doing, I had leads set for me. I would go meet with homeowners where I would run appointments and I would take some measurements of their homes. And then I would do this in-home presentation to sell people, you know, windows, siding or roofing. And I loved it and did really well, did so well that schooling kind of took a back seat. I, I really became driven by money. I was able to maintain really well. I remember I would do classes in the morning, back to back to back to back. And then I would go run appointments in the evening. And my first full year after I got onboarded, I made $70,000. I was 19 years old. 
living with my parents, living a good life. And I just, I was just really hooked. I really love the sales experience. And I would say through that, I was never really the salesperson who could have the best conversation. I don't have a silver tongue. I'm not going to manipulate you. Honest and integrity are things that I really hold close to my heart in terms of what values I look for in other people. So I always just did really well because I just listened. Uh, I was really good at not raising any objections. And I've always kind of had this hustler mentality growing up Mm. as a kid. My uncle had this business called the Water Weenie in Michigan. It was a floating pontoon boat. And I was like 10 years old and I was a cashier. And he literally just had, I hope he's not listening one of these days. He literally had this business just so they could, you know, have fun and, and party. It was just a way to kind of, you know, fund that lifestyle. And then here I was this salesperson per se, you know, trying to make tips. I, I got paid nothing. And I remember collecting cans and turning them in to, you could get 10 cents in, in Michigan for the deposit. I always kind of had this like hustler mentality to kind of do stuff. And I've also always had this try to like figure stuff out, not from a very like detailed like engineering blueprint plans, like down to very precise measurements. But I remember my dad, he worked in kind of the computer space. And in the 90s, he would bring home these computers as they were about to to throw them away. And I remember taking them apart, switching out hard drives, nothing like extremely technical, but at least kind of trying to understand how all the pieces went together to big picture. So I think I really had this experience growing up as kind of like hustling sales, but also really like understanding how can I get the most amount done in the least amount of time. And I think kind of a highlight of that is when I graduated from George Mason, I literally didn't know if I was going to graduate because it took 120 credits to graduate. I had 117 plus my corporate finance class. Mm -hmm. And going into it, I had a D and I knew there was going to be a curve, but you know, you never know uh, what the curve is going to be. And this was class where you're having to do Black-Scholes model. And I knew there was no way I was going to figure out Black-Scholes. So I, I think I just skipped the question on the exam. And somehow I landed up getting a B plus in the class because of yeah. it. So ever since then, that was kind of my entry point into Express Home Buyers. And Express Home Buyers was just really simply, I got burnt out of the home improvement space. There wasn't really an opportunity to learn and grow beyond sales. You know, just not kind of a great industry in terms of the people that work in that. If you've ever seen the movie, uh, I think it's Tin Man from like yes. the second. It's just like that. That really got me, I had this interest in real estate, this finance background, and, and I went to Express Home Buyers, just saw a a job posting on Monster, looking for a salesperson uh, when I graduated college. And then I got into that space. That's cool. So you've really been around it and been observing it for the, for a long time. In starting off in Express Home Buyers, what do you think it was in, that Judd and um, Brad, and, and you have two CEOs, kind of co-CEOs or co-founders, what do you think it was that they saw in you that had them put you in the COO role? Because they've really given you a ton of responsibility. Well, it's definitely been a journey, Cameron. So it's not something that, you know, they gave to me. It's something that I got by, you know, putting in hard work and and demonstrating the ability. I started in Express Home Buyers in 2006. And I would say for probably 
five years, it was nothing but sales. Maybe it was more of like a team lead, kind of the, the head of sales, but we weren't a big company um, back then because the market, the downturn, we just had to be really agile and we had to shift strategy. Maybe what it is, is um, so my one co-founder, Judd, they fired me 30 days in because business, business wasn't going well. And I said to Judd, I said, man, that really sucks. I really like working here. And that just struck a chord with Judd. I really liked Brad and Judd. Like they're like amazing people and really great friends. So it was just, we always had this really good rapport. At that age, I really didn't know enough. But I think looking back is we just, there was something there where we really liked each other. We really got along. Like, is it just a really good fit in terms of balancing each other? So it's really just been a progression for me as we've changed a very entrepreneurial mom and pop scrappy trying a lot of different things chasing shiny objects making a ton of mistakes but always very driven Brad and John are very driven their story is incredible how they got into the business but they were always just very driven to kind of change an industry and I think I always was really appealed to that and we all kind of just got along really well and I remember one thing that always sticks with me is the first day I went there is is they say, if we ever have a problem with each other, we don't sweep it under the rug. We talk mm. about it. And yeah. that's something with Brad and Judd that has allowed this journey to get to where we are today is we talk about everything. If we're, if we're pissed at each other, if we're happy with each other, whatever's going on, we communicate. You guys really do. It's interesting because we've noticed that even on some of our coaching calls where you'd bring up a situation, I'm like, whoa, this is kind of dicey. And they're like, yeah, I talked to him about it this morning or I'm going to talk. I'm like, really? Like you you really do go head on into these things without any fear and worry. And I think that's what Pat Lencioni, when he wrote Five Dysfunctions of a Team was talking about is really getting that, the fear of conflict and the absence of trust, really getting past both of those areas. And you guys have done an amazing job. And that is a core, core underlying reason your company has scaled so much. By the way, I didn't realize that you'd been fired 30 days in. My first real career job was with College Pro Painters, been a franchisee for three years. Then I went on to work at the head office. And on my first day, I got fired. Or my 30th, my, in my first month, I got fired. It might have even been in my first week or so, I think it was. But what happened, one of the VPs had been demoted to a general manager. And so my job didn't exist anymore. And I went in and I was like, there's no way, like, I can't quit. I've been wanting this role forever. So I said, I'll do any job. I'll work temp. I'll do backup. I'll work for minimum wage. Just let me do any job in the company until my position opens up again. So I worked for $11 an hour in my first career job, ended up being with that company for four years. And I'm, I'm really glad I did. But I think that's something that, that maybe I showed and you showed was we really were passionate about the company. And, and it's kind of like we weren't leaving, right? Like, you can fire me, but I'm still staying. Yeah, not to get on a um, a soapbox, but that's one thing that's really passionate to me being in the DC area. A lot of my friends, a lot of my friends, they're a government contractor, they work on Capitol Hill, they do this nine to five grind, and they just hate their job. And I'm always like, why work there and then find something that that you like and that you're passionate about? Because if you're passionate about it, when going gets tough, then you're, you're still interested in it. You're not going to give up. You're not going to quit. And you just become more committed. So that, that's something that's really important to me. And I just see it all the time, given the area that I live in. Yeah, it's awesome. Now, talk to me about how, you know, one of the things I really love is, is learning how a, um, a COO really gets on the same page as the CEO. So I, I wrote that book, Vivid Vision. I've covered it in a couple of my other books, that Vivid Vision concept. But 
How do you get on the same page with two CEOs? How do you make sure that you're really clear on the the vision they have for the organization, where they want things to go? And then how do you get them clear on what your plans are to make their visions come true? Well, Cameron, technically, I think I have three now. Right. We brought a new CEO on in April and, and Brad and Judd are more in founder roles. I think it's really just communicating and we've kind of followed the EOS process. We've done, have read all through of your stuff. And like, I think all of the tools are great and kind of finding, we got to kind of find like what tool works for the personalities of the people. So I think it's really just taking that time to just get clear on like, what are we trying to do? Why, why are we doing this? For us, it's really just been a lot of communication and asking. I'll be honest, I mean, it's, I'm a newer COO, so this isn't something that I've been doing for a decade or, or 20 years and not a shameless plug, but the COO Alliance, honestly, has been phenomenal for me because with my peer groups in this area, I don't have a lot of friends that are in the type of role that I'm in. I have entrepreneurs that are friends of mine, but that's a little bit different because they're seeing it from a different perspective. So I think the things that I have like really learned was to understand that I'm in a relationship with them, just as I'm in a relationship with my wife and my children, that we have to have this like communication of like, what are our goals? What are our values? And really talking about it. And me being an operator, I'm going to ask a lot of questions about their vision to kind of understand it. And I think it really helps them too, because they're all three of them are, you know, extraordinary you know, visionaries that, you know, they want to grow and do a lot of things. Just like really understanding like, what is their why and helping them figure that out? Because if I can help them figure what out, what is important to them, and then I can figure out how do I reverse engineer that, then they're going to give me the autonomy and the trust to, to make decisions of, you know, Hey, we need to allocate resources here, or we need to implement, implement this you know, process. So it's really developed that trust and, you know, going back to five dysfunctions, which is actually a required reading that we have every single new employee. That's the very first book that we require every employee read at our organization. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's a smart one for sure. All right. I want you to tell me about this transition because you just went through a transition that most executives never will. You had two co-founders that you reported to. You were the COO. You've been there for 13 years. You've been building and scaling out the company. With You've had tons of responsibility. And then they come to you and say that they really want to hire a new CEO so they can move into more of a founder role and they want someone to really help you accelerate the growth of the company. So then you three of you go out and recruit and, and interview and hire a CEO to come effectively in between the two of you now. So they're now in a founder role. You've now got a new CEO in the company. How did you grapple with that? How did you get past um, any of the insecurities, any of the worries, any of the frustrations? Like... Walk us through what you were thinking and feeling when it was first happening and maybe how you got through that. Because I think there's some really big lessons there about hiring A players. Yeah, really great question. I think initial reaction is, I'm good. I, I can be CEO or I can do this or you guys just need to listen. And so you have kind of like that initial reaction, which is like very emotional. But then I just kind of sat and I processed it. And I thought about, you know, where we are, where we want to go. I think a limiting factor that I have that I, that I realized that one of my founders told me is, you know, Tom, you're awesome. Like you're, you're in the top 1% in this space. However, that's your biggest weakness is because you've only been in this space. So, so many times our strength is our, our, our weakness as well. And I think I just, I really reflected on that 
And it became clear to me that, you know what, that definitely is right. And that if I'm going to continue to grow, we're going to need help. So I didn't found the company, Cameron. It's Brad and Judd. They started it. And ultimately, I decided that I'm a servant leadership is something that's important to me and, and a value of mine. And at the end of the day, they're the ones that if this doesn't work, that they're going to have a difficult time. Where for me, I'm younger. I have great experience. I'm more employable. I can find other work and I can do other things. It really came down to me just recognizing the fact that I was not the one who started this business, that because of them, I have this opportunity and just really just being a servant to that fact. And then just kind of stepping out of the way. I really just decided, you know what? They want to do this. Let them really take the lead on it. You typically, my initial instinct would be, let me get super involved. Let me talk to this guy. I honestly, I really stayed out of it until we got to the like very end. And it was time to say, hey, is this going to happen? We're going to sign a deal and kind of like the final review. Literally just let them go with it. To be honest, when they make the decision, do I know if I completely agreed or not? I'm not sure, but ultimately I agreed that it's their company and there was it was their decision. So I had to support that. They're the ones who provided for me and my family to do the things that have been important to me. And I couldn't dream up of a, a, any other job than the one that I have. Like I truly love what I do. It, it's a joy for me every day. I love going to work. It's so hard for me to put work away because I just love it so much. It's not something that I put in a box and I have work on the left and I have home at the right. Like they all, they all interchange. I don't know if that uh, is clear or not. No, it is for sure. Now, so walk us through then how the, um, how the transition happened for you. So you've got this new CEO comes into the business. Walk us through kind of the first couple of weeks. What did you go through? What was your roller coaster like? I'm sure you went through a bit of a roller coaster. Just a little bit of a roller coaster. So it's been about three months now. I will tell you, when Mark came in, man, he pushed me. He pushed me hard. Looking at it, it was the right thing to do. He had to see what was I made of. He didn't have a relationship with me. And Mark's been extremely successful. He's built and sold five businesses that he's founded. So he has a resume. He's done it. He's one of those guys where it's just his name and what he's done speaks for himself. And you don't have to really question it. I took that fact and I, I just really recognized that and I, I just accepted it. It went pretty well in the beginning and then kind of hit a point where I think I was texting you and I was like, Cameron, I, I don't know what to do, man. I'm, I'm like really frustrated. And you mm -hmm. gave, I think you gave me some good advice that the thing for me, it seems like the answer is always right in front of you, that it's never that far away, that you just need to take that time to step away. And I believe what you said to me is you need to have a conversation of when you do this, you make me feel this way. So when you say X, Y, Z, you make me feel unimportant or that I don't know what I'm doing. And it, and it makes me upset. Like I, I, have, I have no apprehension of saying I'm an emotional guy because I'm so passionate. Like things definitely can impact me at the core. And I literally was like, you know what, I need to pick up the phone or I, we need to meet and talk. And I talked and the things that I read into was totally misread and it was totally cool. And like, the I, honestly, I feel like the rest is history. He was just here this week. We had an awesome time. 
we spent some time outside of the office, I think, which was really important to, to get to know him as a person mm-hmm. and really ask him a lot of questions and find out because he was asking me all the questions and I was giving him all the answers. But I never really got the time to like find, find out like wh- what are his values and then really come to find out that, you know, what we do, we don't have all the same values, but at the end of the day, in terms of our mission and caring for our people and our employees and our integrity, we are like in the same lane. It just goes back to five dysfunctions, to be honest. I mean, if yeah. I were to summarize what I just said, if you have conflict or you have an issue, you got to talk about it. You can't just let it go, no matter how big or small, because think how much time we waste thinking, oh, this guy, he's out to get me. He's going to bring in his COO. You just get like all these crazy thoughts where totally. yeah. At- end of the day, you just, I just finished reading extreme ownership. I don't know if you've read extreme ownership. No, it's the, the Navy SEAL guys. The one thing they talk about in the SEALs is they gave this story of how when they were in Ramadi, they were getting all of these, you know, questions from their superiors. And I'm like, what's going on? Why are they asking all these questions? They were just trying to understand good CEO is going to ask a lot of questions and really try to understand. That's all it was. I guess I wasn't used to that because I had been running you know, 95% of the decision-making for the last couple of years. So it was, it was definitely a shift and something that I just really had to reflect. Oh, that's awesome. Do you think he can, he can beat us up Camelback Mountain? He, well, so he's a biker. So if we want to go on bikes, he's going to kick our butt because he, <laughs> he's phenomenal. He, he's a super fit guy and, and he, he's an extremely healthy guy. So maybe we'll see. All right, we'll see what he we'll see what he can do. <clears throat> I'm not going to bike with him though, that's for sure. Tell me, you you mentioned the COO Alliance, and we we decided to put this on as a really a network globally because we're actually now opening up in 30 cities over the next three years. You're part of the national program, which is the one that meets every couple months in Scottsdale, Arizona. Tell us what the big couple of lessons or ahas were that you've gained out of that that you brought back into you know your role as a COO. The first time when I went and look, guys, for those of you listening, this is like not a plug like this. Like I totally think there's so much value in the CLO line. So this isn't like scripted or anything. When I first went in as an operator, I thought, all right, I'm going to go to the CLO lines my first time. And I'm going to come back with like three or four things I'm going to implement in, in my business that are going to help us grow. I'm going to get some like aha that's that I'm going to implement. And it wasn't that at all. It basically was, Tom, you need to work on your relationship with your CEO. So it was Brad at that time that you are not doing a good job of managing that relationship and really understanding the CEO mind and the brilliance that's beyond the chaos that we typically focus on. I think just really understanding as we had conversations of this CEO, COO relationship was huge. And it was just really giving Brad ability to really share his ideas and thoughts and understanding as a CEO, they can only hold so many thoughts and they just need to, to get them out. And how can I facilitate a process where Brad can get all of his thoughts out? And we can, you know, document them. And I don't have to do anything with it right now. I just need to listen to him and let him have an opportunity to actually, you know, say what's on his mind. And then we can come back to it at a later date. When we come back to it at a later date, he may be like, you know what? Nine of these 
10. I don't know what I was thinking, Tom. Let's focus on this one and really just give them that opportunity to be able to, to talk about stuff. So I think the CEO, COO relationship was just huge for me. The first time of how to manage that. And second is just the connections. As I mentioned earlier, I don't have connections in my area just because kind of what goes on in the DC area. So being able to connect with other people that are dealing with the same thing was like a huge aha. Like I'm not the only one. Wow, your CEO does that. It actually gave me so much gratitude for my founders because some of the stories that I heard, I'm like, holy cow. Yeah, I actually got it pretty good, don't I? <laughs> Tell me about how you keep yourself focused. I mean, you've got an awful lot on your plate. You guys have got some pretty big growth you're going through. You're now operating in, in multiple cities as well. How do you keep yourself organized and focused in your role? For me, it's all about just being detailed with my notes and my calendar and using technology to facilitate what I need to do. So just kind of a, a couple things that, that I use on a daily basis that I could not live without. I use a mail application that allows me, I use Spark Mail, and it allows me to have my, my calendar and my to-dos all in one place. I review them relentlessly. I probably review them three or four times a day. You know, when I leave the office, I'm reviewing and getting my mind thinking about what do I need to work on tomorrow. And then when I get in, I review it. It's always the first and last thing that I do is review my priorities. And every day as a group with my managers, we set our daily goals and our daily goals have to be attached to what our quarterly priorities are. So we're, we're trying to, you know, obviously, you know, grow the amount of uh, transactions uh, that we do. And we're trying to do that locally. So all of our goals are surrounded around that. So setting two to three priorities every day. And then I just use just different like technology stuff. Um, one that I use that really helps me a lot is Airtable. Airtable allows me to kind of create on the fly CRM systems to kind of manage applicant process, manage goals, just like marketing plans. And it's just very versatile. So I don't have to have a bunch of spreadsheets or Word documents. I, I really love that one a lot. So again, it, it's just really keeping myself super organized. And then going and executing on those two or three things that are the most important. That's awesome. Airtable would be similar to Asana and Trello, just a, a different, it allows you to see projects in different views, correct? Yeah. And, and it's like fully customizable, integrates with a lot of other applications. I kind of liken it to Excel with pivot tables without having to know how to do pivot tables and being in like a very nice, like visual representation. Of course, it's all, you know, in the cloud. So, you know, you can, set access to who you want to set access to. Very cool. Tell me about uh, how you guys say no to projects. How do you decide what to green light and what to red light or what to yellow light in terms of projects across the organization? It's really just talking about it and, and having a conversation. We've gone through an EOS implementation. So we set quarterly rocks and then we break those rocks down into goals. And we just really follow that process a lot. And then when a new idea comes up, you know, we'll, we'll discuss it uh, in our meeting. So we, we stick to what is in the plan. I mean, I'll be honest, that's an area that we're really working to get better at. And the thing that I'm most looking forward to with uh, Mark coming on board is he, he's really good at really coming up with a good strategic plan. I think that's an area that we had some weakness in. 
it's just taking those things and looking at, you know, the pros and cons, like are does this project that we want to do, does that, you know, get us to where we want and really for what it is right now, as an example, we're, we're in a spot where we need to, or we're in a sublease and, and it ends the end of next month. It's really, you know, we could go through all this planning to have this great space and do all this stuff. We have a pretty decent space. So it's, it's like revenue over aesthetics. Like we need revenue right now. So that's what the business needs. So we're going to focus on it. And I'm sure in, you know, 12 to 18 months when, when we're continuing to grow that then that's going to be more important. But today it's, it's really just focusing on revenue generating activities for us. That's awesome. Tell me about some of the early stage um, successes that you had then with Express Home Buyers. What were some of the early maybe decisions that you guys made or that you made or some of the early systems that have helped you scale? I think the one thing that I, that I tell people a lot is having great visionaries that called the name of our company Express Home Buyers. So with what we do where we buy homes directly from sellers is a lot of our competitors have a company names like Tom buys houses or Cameron will buy your house. And these very like mom and pop kind of things that don't scale. So they, they came up with a really good name. And we have this little jingle where, you know, on, we did TV advertising and I would still do a little bit where it's like, we'll buy your house in seven days. And, and people hear that. So they, uh, my founders had just phenomenal insight from coming up with a good name and a good hook to position ourselves in the marketplace. It's so funny. Like people will like sing the, the jingle to me or like kind of like make jokes when I'm recruiting and they're like, so are you going to be able to hire me in seven days and, and stuff like that? So it's definitely has shown it. So I think that, I think the one thing that being really more of like a sales and marketing organization is just having a really good foundation of having a CRM where you're tracking leads and like the kind of jargon of like, no lead left behind, just really following up with leads and really focusing on your leads and, and really you know, tracking everything and measuring you know, what's working and staying in touch with people. We have people that sell their house to us where they've been in our system for like three, four, five years. And without a good system to have that in place, you would never be able to keep track of that. So that, that's something that's really important um, for us. And you guys have really kind of tipped the industry upside down and are doing something very different. So can you tell us the specifics of, of what exactly, and maybe we should have started with this, but what exactly does Express Home Buyers do? And then talk to us a little bit about how you've, uh, without giving away your trade secrets, what maybe you've done to, to turn the industry upside down so quickly. Well, there's no trade secrets. It's just, you know, hard work and effort. But for us, for most of our existence up until about two and a half years ago, uh, we did what Cameron said in the intro. We do direct response advertising through internet, TV, direct mail to generate demand or leads, people who want to sell their home fast for cash. We would make offers to buy homes where we would pay cash, close whenever the seller wanted, you know, many times in a couple of days, sometimes in a couple of weeks, sometimes in a couple of months, where we would buy your home as is where you don't have to make any repairs, you don't have to have agents coming through, there's no contingency. So working with sellers that were in some sort of financial distress or situation where the home was a burden and they just needed to get out of it, that, that's who we really work with. So we buy the homes and we would fix them up and then resell them and, and hopefully make a profit. So if you've ever seen the HG 
TV shows of like flip this house or flip that flop. That's us. We just happen to be doing it at scale in the in our market and did that for a while. And I would never say, Cameron, that we were the best fixer uppers. We quite honestly, like really not that good at that. We've always just really been good marketers and salespeople and being able to generate business and just kind of through a, a series of events as we tried to scale. We we came to a point where we had about 80 properties under just various stages of construction. And I don't know that I would quite call it a house of cards, but we were in a bad relationship with a bad contractor. Mm-hmm. And it just put us in a really tough spot. I mean, you're talking a lot of debt to finance these properties, a lot of risk. And we survived the downturn. We've we've paid every penny of the over $300 million that we've ever borrowed. Like we've never not paid 100% of our money back to our investors. We've taken losses, but our investors never have. And through that, we had this experience where we just really needed to generate cash. And something that kind of happens in our industry and and something that we did a little bit, but not a whole lot, is uh, what's called wholesaling. And now what wholesaling is, is now when we get that property under contract to buy, I now sell my contract to another investor who does the same thing that we were doing. And this investor is likely going to be smaller. Maybe it's a real estate agent who flips a house or two a year. Maybe it's a small operation that does one a month or a couple a month. But all of these people, they have a hard time finding deals. If we look at what's going on in the US housing market, there's just no inventory. And we're, we're able to find inventory. So we shifted to where now what we do is we're, we're kind of playing middleman or matchmaker where we get a property under contract and we sell it to another investor and they pay us a fee for putting the deal together. And what's awesome about that is now we're wholly focused on our strengths. It's all sales and marketing, customer service processes to generate you know, more, more demand and, and more leads to help more people. And it's highly scalable too. I could go into... California, and I don't have to know a whole lot about construction or codes or have a bunch of general contractors. I just got to find like really good salespeople and have good processes on the back end and set really clear expectations with homeowners of, of what we're actually doing and demonstrate that by us putting this business together, we're able to help a lot more people and kind of our, our industry kind of has like that used car mentality. It's like, all right. I know I'm not going to get a good deal. What's going on? Like, we really want to change that. That's always kind of like been our, our BHAG is, you know, creating this platform of where motivated sellers and investor buyers come together. So we, that's where we've shifted. And, and that's what has led, you know, us to be coached by you and me being the COO Alliance is like, how do we like really scale this? How do we grow? There's a huge opportunity. Real estate's one of the industries that really hasn't been that impacted by technology and it's a it's a massive industry it's going to happen and we want to be a part of it yeah good for you you guys are really you're you're making a lot of very grounded decisions a very um like core values based decisions have you ever had your core values tested where you maybe profit was pulling you in one direction but your core values pulled you in the opposite i i think so just in terms of chasing stuff or or doing deals that you shouldn't do. I wouldn't say so much in terms of us, in terms of the benefit to cost benefit to the seller, because 
there is no like twisting someone's arm and trying to convince them that, hey, sell your house to us and you're actually getting more money. It, it's not that at all. It's sell your house to us and you can have that certainty. But I de- I've definitely had core, my, my other core values, you know, tested in, in terms of learn and improve is one of ours. And I unfortunately just had to let someone go because a particular person just was kind of just being disrespectful to another colleague. And we had a conversation about it. We had a plan and literally it got worse. It didn't get better. And I just wasn't going to tolerate someone disrespecting someone on my team who's just like, she's a superstar. She's phenomenal. And so I've, I've probably had more of those type of values tested in terms of like the people and the Mm -hmm. people or values or having a salesperson who's dishonest, like that doesn't work for me. You got to be honest and you got to have integrity. So those those are really the things that I've really been tested with. Yeah, it's cool. And it's, it's really awesome watching you guys operate and, um, and build the business. Tell us about some mistakes. What mistakes have you made along the way? We haven't made any mistakes, Cameron. (laughs) Oh man, we've made so many. I think some of the, the biggest ones were, growing too fast with construction without like a real plan in place of how we were going to manage it, not doing enough due diligence on deals that we were buying. There was one where we did a development deal where we thought that the lot could be subdivided. Um, This was in Arlington. This was back in the day. And we had all the engineering, all the approvals and everything, bought the property and then after we bought the property, like, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. You can't subdivide it. And that was a massive, massive, massive loser. But we, uh, we bought the bullet. That was awful. I think a lot of mistakes with people over the years. We really spent a lot of time and effort now in, in having a really good interviewing, onboarding experience and making sure that we get the right people because we've just made decisions of just like hiring someone because we just need help. And then when they're not a fit, not acting fast. So we, we really just truly follow the hire slow and fire fast. You know, I, I think it's a big disservice if you have someone on your team who's not performing to that you know is just not going to work out to keep them around. If you're just doing them a disservice. You should be helping them find their next opportunity instead of taking advantage of their time when, when ultimately you know it's not going to work out. Yep. It's interesting how um, I think we often put some of those decisions to the side and, and just kind of cruise forward. So what about your skill set? I mean, in our roles as a COO, we're obviously trying to always trying to grow or should be Ray Kroc, who um, grew McDonald's, said, when you're green, you're growing. When you're ripe, you're dead. What skills are you working on today? For me, I'm, I'm really trying to focus on being better of Really making sure that the two to three things that I'm working on really are the most two to the two to three most important things because there's a million things I could do every day. So I'm really working on that. Secondly, the thing that I'm I'm really working on now, I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts and I really liked what the COO of the Shopify said, where you your role as a COO is going to change all the time. And I see right now that the thing that's going to make Express Home Buyer successful is having the right people on the, the sales side of our business. So I've kind of turned the, the org chart upside down. I've, I've moved responsibilities, shifted stuff around, moved the pieces around. And I'm really working to kind of like get back to basics to really help my people 
and find out like, what is it that they need? So it's more of the skill that I'm, uh, to, to summarize that is really finding out what are the holes that are preventing my people from being successful? Because I feel like we do a really good job on recruiting and I want to set people up for success. So I'm trying to eliminate those areas that don't set them up for success. Okay, so our, our role, I've always believed as leaders, is to grow people. So if our role is to grow people, what are you doing today specifically to grow your team then? Yeah, so really just keeping it simple and meeting with everyone you know, weekly and saying, hey, Cameron, what's going well? What's not going well? And where do you need help? And then really coaching them in those areas. And then really starting to kind of like study the people that are having really good success within our organization, finding out what is it that they do that the other four or five people don't do and trying to come up with a plan to help people learn to do the things that, you know, the top performers do. So really just help them imitate uh, what is needed to, to be successful. One thing that I, that I do as well too, is I have all of my reports do weekly personal goals, financial goals, and business goals. I really want to know what's going on at home and, you know, what are they trying to work on? Are they trying to lose 10 pounds? All right. Well, if they're going to try to lose 10 pounds and, or I I look at as an aggregate, let's say over 50% of people on my team are really concerned about their health. Let me put a focus on health and make sure that we don't, you know, have crap food in the office and stuff like that. I really encourage people to say, Hey, what can I do to help you with that? Or encourage them and just say, Hey, how's it going? Did you, did you work out this week? Oh, I got two days. Okay. Come on. Let's go work out one day a week or something. Just like really help them hit their goals so that they're you know mentally prepared to do a good job for us. Good for you. Yeah, and you got to always be working on that. What about your meeting rhythms? What what have you guys done? You know, we covered a lot in the book. Meetings suck, but what are you guys doing internally with professional buyers to um, you know keep the right meeting rhythms and to to run efficient meetings because we can't get away from them. Yeah, we've really um, love your book, Meeting Sock. I mean, it, it's kind of funny. Like you give the analogy, like we just expect people know how to participate in meetings. And we're always as a leader, like, I want feedback from people. I want you to talk, like open up. But we haven't really taught people how to do that. So we've really been doing that. Just like allowing people to opt out and constantly looking at and being relentless about, you know, what are the meetings that we're having? And do these even make sense to be having anymore? Because the cost of having all of your people together, I mean, it, it's a lot when you add it up. So really just constantly iterating and, and making sure that only the people that need to be there are there and allowing people to opt out. But the thing about meetings, though, they start on time and they end on time. Like It's just that it's a huge disrespect for people to show up late. We've implemented a, a push-up policy where you know, five push-ups for, you know, every minute you're late. And I'll tell you, once we did that, Cameron, it was like amazing. Like, I don't think people are ever more than like a minute or two late. No more of that, like five to 10 minutes late, or I forgot. Like it just, there's just no exception. Like we got to respect everyone's time. Yeah, you have to for sure. And I mean, the only way that we can actually start on time is to be finishing five minutes early, right? So that's kind of the rule that we put in place. If you finish every phone call and every meeting five minutes early, then you can actually show up on time. Yeah, definitely. What have you guys done with cell phones in meetings? Anything? No cell phones in meetings. No way. No cell phones, no iWatches, none of that. You have pulled them away then? Oh, yeah. We've been doing that for a while. You're only allowed to have a computer if you're you're presenting on something. 
right? That's huge. I mean, we tried doing it at the uh, at the CO Alliance. We've done it successfully now with a number of the meetings where when you walk in the door, you actually have to check your cell phone at the door and then you get to participate. And the reality is if you're too busy to be in the meeting without your cell phone, then you shouldn't be there in the first place, right? I totally agree with you. If you were to give one kind of parting word of advice to any of the, the leaders listening to the um, our podcast today, what would you give them that, that you've learned along the way that you'd want them to internalize and grow from? I think the biggest thing is to really understand your CEO. As a COO, that's our job. Our job is to make their vision come a reality. The only way that we can do that is to really understand them and find out like what's important to them and what's not important to them. And if you can execute on your their vision and and, and hopefully you're you're at an organization where you already kind of have you know, similar values and you guys like each other and, you know, there's mutual respect. So like assuming all that stuff is in place, just really understand your CEO, what they're about, what makes them tick, what's important to them. And that's that's just going to eliminate a ton of stress in your life and in your day to day. If you can really, really get down to, to what, what makes them drive, what makes them tick. That's awesome. And I think you've really done a good job with understanding people, both not only your two co-founders, now your new CEO, yourself and your team. So that's certainly become one of your strengths along the way. Tom, thank you so much for sharing all the ideas and the insights with us today. I know we didn't dig into the, the actual business itself, but you really showed us kind of why you guys have scaled and how you've scaled. And I really appreciate you sharing all that. Well, thanks, Cameron. I appreciate the kind words and uh, it's a pleasure to, to talk with you today. All right, man. We'll see you this fall. All right. Thanks. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.